Um, this Romans, we're doing it in kind of four sections, and we are starting. Uh, we just finished the section that we called the good news um, about the gospel in the beginning, and then we are now starting the section, uh, how do we live then? Uh, as a section getting more into even some maybe practical, or so what does it look like then to live out of the gospel? And so we're excited to start that and get moving on that. A reminder to you, if um, you're new, or just a reminder, it's been a little while since we were um, in Romans. We have a lot of resources for this. Um, on our app, we have tons of resources. Uh, many, many years of sermons from home, uh, articles, devotions, there's studies, there's studies on Romans and many books of the Bible uh, for small groups and all sorts of things. Also on there, um, we have a, a podcast that Pastor Steve has been doing. He's been leading a retreat and studying Romans for many years, and now he does a little podcast. It's great just walking through Romans with you, untangling it by the uh, title is what's happening there. Also, we have um, these great uh, journal Bibles are just the book of Romans, but they have lots of room to write and take notes, and we have those for you, and I know there's still some out there. So if you think they're on the communion tables in the hallway, that's, that's for you just to take. It's free. So um, all capital, F-R-E-E, free. Uh, so take it. Um, it's a great way. I know some of you have been using it to walk through this as we've gone through this as a church. Uh, it could be a really great uh, thing to do, even just for like a history, a moment kind of in your life as we go through Romans right now to really uh, see what God's doing in it for you. So we'd love for you to take that and use that together. Okay, here we go. I would love to go somewhere. Uh, when in college, I had the opportunity to study Egyptian mythology. It was one of my uh, uh, emphases, I believe is what they called it. Uh, it was the, one of the fastest tracks. When I said, how can I get out of college the fastest? They said, well, if you, if you majored in this and you had an emphasis in Egyptian mythology, that would go faster. And I said, I love Egyptian mythology. And so uh, it's actually coming pretty handy, just ancient history in the Middle East. Um, and so one of the places I love to go to is this Valley of the Kings. This is the place where there's all these tombs of, um, of all these kings and royalties, people who are very important uh, in ancient Egypt. And this is where they found the, the, uh, the tomb of King Tut that you might uh, be aware of. It's, it just looks like a very cool place. I've actually recently been watching a, a National Geographic thing on Disney Plus about it. It makes me want to go there even more. It looks so, so cool. Um, and so this is actually, uh, you zoom in here, uh, there's all these spots where over the years, many, many people have dug and dug and dug and found entrances to tombs, um, or they found broken in entrances. And in fact, over all the years, they rarely have found tombs that are already kind of ransacked. They're not already stolen, that people haven't come over time, all of the many, many thousand years that um, they have uh, been buried there. Uh, and so when they found the tomb of King Tut, it was a very big deal because it was intact. It had not been touched. All, all the valuables and things had not been taken out of it. And so for years, if you imagine, people um, dug all these paths and went, found all these entrances and the excitement that they had. We think we finally found it. This must be uh, the treasure, the tomb. This, all this history is going to unlock all these things that will hopefully help us understand uh, history from a long ago that we're not sure of, or why did they, people do certain things, all those things, right, that could happen. And they would open tombs and they'd be empty. Clearly just over time, people had come and taken the gold or the uh, things that were in there and, and sold in museums or just taken what was valuable. Some of them they found uh, just had remnants of things. And so they finally find this tomb uh, of King Tut and it's a big deal because they open it and they finally find one that hasn't been um, taken. They actually think over time, maybe because of flooding, uh, that, that all these boulders would have covered the entrance of it. So for many, many years, no one even knew that 
tomb was there. And so finally, over all these years, they get to a tomb, and again, they have a, a spot where it's clear that there's like a doorway. This is the actual picture of it. It's clear there's a doorway. Uh, this, ar- this archaeologist, Carter, finds it with his team, and they, they see the doorway. They kind of dig down, and they go, this is clearly an interesting tomb. Will this be one that finally unveils, like, we finally see all the treasure and the riches of this king, and they bore a little hole in there. They start digging a hole so they can peek in there to see if anything's in there. This is his team after they uh, get in there. This is wonderful. This summer, we had the chance to go to the Field Museum uh, in Chicago. There's a whole exhibit uh, on, on a lot of stuff they found, not, not just in that, not in that tomb, but... All, all these people, like real mummies we're looking at. And they have this exhibit, it's my favorite part of the whole thing. But there's a tiny hole on a wall, it says, look in here, it says, this is what he saw when he first looked in the tomb of King Tut. My girls were not impressed with that. I was like, you gotta see this! It's clearly an old display, it's just a hole in a fake brick wall. There's clearly just like a picture taped on the other side of the wall. But I was like, could you imagine that moment when he actually was standing right there? And there's this tiny hole in the wall, and he walks up to the hole, and he gets closer and closer and closer, and he finally peeks in, and this is what he actually sees. He sees a room full of stuff, which hadn't happened before. A room full of, uh, as they open it up, all sorts of great things. And his partners who are with him, they say, hey, what do you see? What do you see? And he says, wonderful things. Such a great phrase. I love it. Made me like, made me all feel all tingly at the uh, field museum. No one else did around me. I was like, guys, did you see what happened? He said wonderful things. Isn't that cool? No, no one else was amazed. They're already off to looking at cool mummies. But I that that phrase like hit me. It made me think of so many things, especially as I'm thinking about the book of Romans. Uh, and, and so we're gonna get there. I love this moment. He looks in the hole, and then finally, after all those searching, all those other tombs, all these other places, like his life's work, looking, he sees, and as he looks, peers in there. And as they open this hole, they see wonderful things, and they did. The tomb was full of things. They start pulling things out, and as they pull things out, they're discovering all these things, even about just ancient Egyptian history, about the people. They're discovering new things, uh, unraveling things they weren't sure about, and now it makes sense because of the things that were put in the tomb. For them, they put all these things in there thinking that would bring it to the afterlife with them, and so eventually they find wonderful things that are covered in gold. Um, It's just incredible. You think they walked in there, no one had been in there for a very very long time, and it was full of all things. If you're, you've seen this picture of the actual mask that was covering uh, the tomb, wonderful things they find inside of this. And so as we start our book of Romans here, uh, I think Paul is trying to have us feel a similar thing, understand a similar thing. He's saying throughout all the time, people have been looking in different ways to make themselves right with God, different ways to find the, their rightness, their wholeness, and, and we start peeking in, and we find ourselves in the book of Romans with kind of the thesis of the book, the thing that says, hey, this is what I want you to know is true. This is such good news, and I want to unpack this for a while. Uh, but he peers in, and we see this wonderful, wonderful verse that sheds light on something I think we've been all looking for. I know the people who read this with Paul and all of us have been looking for this thing we call the gospel, this good news. And this is what it says in Romans 4, uh, in Romans 1, 16. So we're going to a quick overview here of Romans 1. Um, I think that gives us this wonderful thing that we uh, have discovered. 
in the book of Romans. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God through salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. This is what he's going to unpack for a long time here in Romans, and we're going to look at today. He's saying this good news is that the power of God to save us, to rescue us, to make us right, to forgive us, to make us whole, comes to all people. Jewish people and Greeks, Jews and Bernese were Gentile here, non-Jews. It's for all people. It's been revealed to us. And how do we get it? We don't actually even have to dig deep and, and dig in multiple places and hope, hope and try to keep it, you know, like put in boxes and carry it up. We just have to turn to Jesus, put faith in him that he has done the work to make us ready. So he says this great gift is that all these things we've been trying, all these places we've been looking, we finally found the true king. We finally found the most wonderful things. So quick overview here of Romans 1 through 3. I think he is unpacking so we can hear how good this news is. We might go like, yeah, that sounds great, but... I don't know, and so he unpacks how important it is to understand this, and that's what we're going to look at now, is this wonderful, most wonderful thing of the gospel in here. So uh, buckle up, we're going to look through a lot, of, a lot of scripture here today as we just look back through 1 through 3, get a little review of it, and hop into Romans 4. We're just going to ask the question, has this always been the good thing? Has this always been just the most wonderful thing? Has this always been the way God has worked with his people? Uh, spoiler, yes, it is. So here we go, Romans 1 through 3. We're going to just look at some of the key verses here. First, he makes an argument. He explains to us that the wrath of God here in verse 118, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He comes right out of the gates and says, hey, right after that verse, the power of God comes to save, and the wrath of God is actually being shown against those who have turned from God. And so first we learn that wrath is coming because of the worshiping of created things, which we get to down here in, uh, later in Genesis 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks for him. They, they knew God, but they didn't glorify, worship him, or give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You hear a lot of flipped language. They thought they were really wise, but actually they were foolish. They thought they were in the light, but actually it was dark. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, a human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. That makes me think of tombs, too. All those, all those images in there, all those uh, actual, like, created animals that went with King Tut. Um, and so it's saying they created all these things to, to turn their worship to and not the one, the creator, right? Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is it right here. This is where it's getting. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praising him. So this is the heart of it. He's saying, here's really where we're at. We turn to things that are not God to try to get out of them what is God, which is goodness and righteousness and uh, wholeness. We turn to these things first as if they're going to bring these things, which could be a definition of what sin is. And so we turn to, to lies, not truth, uh, our creation, not creator. So Romans 1 first is trying to unpack this, that, hey, there's this um, real consequence to this. It's a big deal. 
He's giving us kind of the bad news so that the good news is so good. And he says, even for you. So at this point, if you're a Jewish reader, you might think, yeah, but not us. He's talking about those like really bad non-Jewish people that do all those things. And then he turns in Romans, in Genesis 2, well, Romans 2, not Genesis 2. Romans 2, he turns and he says, uh, all of you actually, be careful. Be careful. And so even for the Jew who is given the law, even that Jew has turned from God. You, therefore, have no excuse. Kind of comes strong. He just had said, hey, you turned from God. You worship created things. He actually gave examples that they might think of like pagan religion around them in the sense of, hey, they make statues and they make things. And they, they might be thinking of Egyptians and their, the statues they worship that look like animals. They're saying, how silly. But we're God's chosen people. We don't do anything like that. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's like you're doing the same thing. It's a different way. You're doing the same thing. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do not teach yourself. So he's saying, you come with this law. You come, God has given you what it looks like to live in light, to care for those who are blind, to, to instruct people who don't have wisdom, to teach. You, you're the ones who come as like the body of God to teach those things, and you're not doing those things. How, how does that work? You then, you teach others, you do not teach yourself. You who preach against stealing, you steal. And you who say that people should not commit adultery, you, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So he's, he's laying it on really strong here. He's saying, hey, you, you say, we're so good. God has chosen us. We know what to do. This is what God has for you. Maybe you can picture someone saying, you know, talking to someone else saying, yeah, but you've got to do this and this. You're not, that's not okay what you're doing, but then you're doing it yourself, right? This hypocrisy. He's saying, you're saying you have the same issue. It's ultimately you're creating, worshiping creative things that might even just be you and, and your works. And ultimately, how strong is this? God's name is blasphemy. It's, it's turning away from God because of you, because of the way you act towards them. And so not only is wrath coming, not only is uh, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and Jewish people all seem to be having the same issue, uh, he just really lays it in here. We're all in trouble. That's a good uh, just summary of three chapters of Romans. We're in trouble. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then he quotes, this is incredible. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They all together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's a lot. You can stop there. You keep going. No, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He really wants us to understand. All of you are in trouble. You've turned away from what the, how God's created you. Uh, you can see it in your actions and how you treat one another, how you use 
one another. You're all in trouble. You're all really in the same place. And so it, it would have been a very hard to hear as a Jewish person, but they, they can't be. So much of my identity is I'm not like them. And so much of their identity is I'm not like you. And he's saying you're actually all in the same place. I actually heard an interview this week about this song. Anyone know this song? Walk This Way? I remember friends being Aerosmith fans, and they're like, we heard this song with these rappers. And then I remember friends who loved hip-hop say the opposite. I heard this song, uh, Rick Rubin, who's the uh, long-haired guy in the middle there, uh, produced this. There's an interview with him uh, where he explains, they said, why did you create the song Walk This Way? It's like one of the, the original crossovers where hip-hop and, and rock kind of came together, and it was a huge deal. It caused like controversy. I heard stories of people canceled gigs for the bands because they didn't like that they played hip-hop or whatever. But they asked him, like, why his motivation? What made you do that? Do you think it would just, like, sell records? And he said, I had been with friends around the same time, friends who loved hip-hop, and they were talking about how rock wasn't real music. And then I was with friends who really liked rock, and they were like, hip-hop's not real music. It's almost hard, like, right now to think about because it's People don't necessarily think that way now with music, but he said, I was remembering them talking about how each of these bands weren't real music. And he was like, oh, of course it's real music. And his, his head is somebody who produces music. He said they literally use the same beats. They literally use the same drum machine to create beats in some of their songs. And so he created a song that starts with a drum beat that, that he hoped both people would hear. People who love rock and people who love hip-hop would be like, oh, this is going to be a good song. This is music. And then they go, uh-oh, there's people rapping. Maybe rap. Maybe hip-hop is music. And maybe someone who loved rock would go like, oh, here's a, here's a, here's a beat. Yeah, maybe, maybe these people make music. Do you, have, do you have like the first few seconds of this? Steve has got this one. He's going to actually play it on a drum set to back for us. Here it comes. No, not yet. <laughs> so you just hear this, right? You hear this for how many seconds? This is 10 seconds. And then the guitar comes in, maybe you can build on the song. Oh, not yet, sorry. Thanks, Steve. Nice work on the drum set. So he said, I intentionally wanted a few bars of that beat because I wanted everyone to start believing this is music and it's my music and then realize, oh, Maybe hip-hop's music. Maybe rock is music. I love that idea. Like, wanted to make them all realize they're in the same place. And I think in a very, very similar way, Paul is saying, I want you all to sit down and go, you don't think that's music, you don't think that's music. It's all music. It's really bad music. You're in a lot of trouble. You're all in a lot of trouble. Because when, you, when we all can sit for a second and go, okay, I'm in trouble. I've been turning my worship to other things. I've been living a life that I think that, that I'm creating a great person, a whole person, and realizing actually someone else does that. That's not me. And so he does that so he can share this great news that our rightness, our righteousness comes from faith in Christ alone. That it's not they're, they're doing it right or wrong or, or we're doing it right or wrong. It's, we're, we're all in trouble here because we weren't created for that, for us to make ourselves right. We were created for God to make us right. And so Genesis 3 gets to the heart of this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely, made right, freely, by His grace, His free gift through the redemption that came 
like Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be seen by faith. See, the way to rightness with God and ultimately wholeness for you and ultimately a life that changes you into the person you really do desire to be comes out of a faith, putting a faith in Christ, actually turning to our creator and saying, Christ came, gave his life because someone owed death for the consequences of sin. He gave his life and now God's given us back. He's exchanged with us this incredible life. And now he sees us when he sees Christ and, and this incredible sacrifice of atonement. This is a, a gift where Christ dies on our behalf by the shedding of his blood we receive by faith. Meaning we turn to him and say, I believe Christ has done that work. Christ is the one who's, who's good and right and true. And because of that, God actually will change us. The first step into following God, the first step into Christianity, what we were created to be, were people who first put faith and trust in a God who will make things right. And a God who has the power to make things right. Not us making things right, and then God saying, oh, I want to join you. So he, he shares this in these first three chapters of Romans. That's kind of where we end at the end of Romans 3. This is great news. Hey, you've been trying all these things, turning to all these things, looking at all these tombs and Wonderful news. There's wonderful things in this one. And it's the good news that it's not me trying harder and doing more, but it's a God who has come to save you. And so he kind of gives us this math form. He says the power of the gospel, right? The worship of creation brings death. Faith in my own work brings death. Faith in myself, just I got this, just out of my own goodness, death. Faith in a religion in religious acts brings death, but faith in Jesus Christ's work brings righteousness. Faith in what he's done actually brings our rightness, and that is what changes us. And 2 Corinthians um, says it like this, kind of sums up all of Romans 1 through 3. God made him, him who had no sin to be sin. He said to Christ, who not, does not have sin, is not turned away, does not worship created things. He comes to take that on for us. To be sin for us. So that, because of that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love how Eugene Peterson says this in his uh, translation of the message. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How, you ask? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong. So we could be right with God. That's just great news. That so every day I get older, I go, I can't do this. I can't figure this out. And he says, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to turn to one who has figured out, has done right, and he'll change you, and that will change how you are. And so I think in this moment, Paul's anticipating, especially Jewish people might say, yeah, well, is this always how it's been? Or maybe is this just a new thing? Paul, are you coming out with like a new book that's changed everything? Is this the like, no one's ever figured this out and now I just figured it out kind of thing? Is it one of those like for centuries people have been eating a certain way and now I figured out the diet that no one's figured out and it's going to radically change everything you just have to pay me for some seminars? Is it one of those like because that's a very real human thing that we we go from one thing to the next thinking I've now figured it out in scripture sometimes they call it like secret knowledge. i figured out this new secret thing that no one else has figured out and now right now in this time we have advanced to a place where we now know and no one else ever knew, is it one of those things? I, I could feel it. I feel that in reading this. Is it one of those things? 
It's one of those moments where Paul is just like, hey, I think I figured out a new thing. They say, but we have a long history of people who are following God. What about them? How did that work with them? And so it's this moment where we, we might say our time is the only important time. We know best now, right? There's a very common feeling of that. And I think Paul's going to go after that thing that we do, right? C.S. Lewis section calls this chronological snobbery. That was the snobbiest picture I find him. <laughs> Can you imagine him in a British accent saying, you're being chronological snobs. I don't have a British accent. That was Imagine it. So is this just chronological snobbery? Did Paul just say, oh, I figured out a new thing. We're so much more advanced than our ancestors. And so he goes right to it. He goes right to the father of, of um, the Jewish people, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you, right? You are, please. He goes right to it. He says, Okay, let, let's go to the all the way back. The, the founding father, we'd say, even of our faith, that many faiths would call a founding father. What about him? Is this how he worked? Did he work on this faith that brought him righteousness? It seems like we celebrate all these ancient and, and heroes of our faith about all this great stuff they did. I don't, is that, especially throughout history, that definitely turned to a worship of like all this great stuff in these heroes. And so they say, what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? So what about Abraham? Because it doesn't seem like that's how it works. A quick, quick overview of Abraham. We're actually going to walk through some history. This is all that Romans 4 is. is going after some of the ways that we've used Abraham to say, hey, this is why he's righteous. And Paul just going, actually, let's look back at scripture. That's not why he's righteous. And so Abraham was someone who actually was not a, a follower, was not actually following God, and God comes to him and calls him to leave his home, give up his residence, and move to the promised land. And God then promises him, at this point his name is Abram, to make him a great nation. Promises to bless those who bless Abram. And he promises to bless all the people on earth through him. Wow, right? He actually says, yeah, so he goes, okay. I will follow you. So then we see as it moves through the book of Genesis, God confirms his promise. He enters into a covenant with Abraham. He actually puts him to sleep. You remember the story? And he's, he um, cuts a bunch of animals in half and walks through them. It's a very strange story. But it's actually an acting out that happens uh, in that time. An acting out where uh, people would walk through animals that were cut in half. Like let's say two kings were making a covenant with each other. This promise to do something. They walk through, maybe even holding hands, and walk together through these dead animals because it was a symbol that if either of us broke our covenant, this is how we'd end up dead, right? Like these animals. And so God actually does, he actually puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through. He's kind of showing like, you're not going to be able to fulfill this covenant of faithfulness necessarily all the time, but I will. It's incredible. It's like a gospel picture because we know now God actually does keep his covenant, but he also then dies because of our broken covenant with him. It's incredible. But he does promise Abraham that he's going to do this. And it says that Abraham believes the Lord and it's credited to him as righteousness. So he goes on to promise him the promised land and, and all these other things he gives to him. Uh, then Genesis 17, we get other 
uh, parts of Abram's story. He's now 99 years old, very old, looking towards death. And God um, comes to him, and he says, I'm actually going to give you a child. You and your wife, Sarah, don't have a child, and I'm going to make you not only a child to him, but to many people. Many, many people. And this is also where he says, you now who have made a covenant with me, who have uh, turned to me, who are faithful to me, are going to um, circumcise your, your male descendants as a symbol of a covenant that you, that's going to set you apart. Um, it's interesting. And then he does. These, these old people give birth to a son, Isaac. It's an incredible story. He fulfills his promise to them, blessing Sarah and Abraham. And then God really tests his faith. Another opportunity for him. This is a classic Bible story, if you you may know it. He says, I want you to actually take your son onto a hill and sacrifice him. Abraham does. Um, and at the last second, um, God's plan was actually to stop it. And he has a ram hiding in the bush there. And uh, it comes out and sacrifices that instead. It's this great picture of God uh, taking his son and sacrifice him for others. It's an incredible story. Abraham has this, this founding story of faithfulness to God's people. And so he says, I'm going to use this story. This is the Father Abraham is, is like our father of our faith. And actually, I'm going to, of everyone's faith in his example. And so he's going to just go through the arguments that he thinks maybe the Jewish followers there that uh, were with, with them in that church might have. Because he wants us to understand this is how God has always made us. To really cement it, this isn't some new cool uh, philosophy. This is really how God has made us. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, so if he was made right by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His faith, his belief in what God would do and who God was is what brought his rightness, right? His faith turning to God. Now to the one who works, wages are not accredited as a gift, but as an obligation. So if you if you work for your mice, right, a lot of us, if you work, you do a job, right? And you do your work and you show up, punch in. I just did the time to punch in. No one does that anymore, right? There's no piece of paper anymore. <laughs> if you punch in on your phone or however that works, your time, you put your time in and work, then you get something for that. But that's not a gift. It's because you've exchanged something, right? You've done something to get it back. However, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly their faith is credited as righteousness. What if you didn't work, but you were given the wages of that work? Someone else did the work and you got paid for it. That would be a gift. That's what we're talking about here. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then David here quotes it in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin in the whose sin the Lord will never count against them. This uh, first part is just a quotation from Genesis 15. Uh, and he believed the Lord and he counted, to him, uh, counted it to him as righteousness. It's just from there, he, God says, I want you to go to this place. I, I want you to do this. I'm going I'm to make you the father of many. It says multiple times, he says, he believed God, put faith in God, and that's what made him right to God. So they're saying, hey, it wasn't because Abraham did some awesome things. In fact, when God kind of came to him, he was actually worshiping other gods. It was the moon god. You think, he went to that guy. 
and said, hey. And that guy turned and said, okay, I believe you. I'll go where you, show me where to go. I'm with you. And then he was made right. He was forgiven with God. And then we see here even David calls out the same system in kind of God's economy. Isn't that kind of like, I do enough and then God will pay me with forgiveness and righteousness? He says, actually, uh, you're ungodly and God will forgive you. Douglas Moo, uh, in his commentary on Romans, says, Thus Paul concludes, it is the ungodly who God justifies by faith. I love he uses that word, it's a strong word. The statement is a uh, justly famous expression of a fundamental biblical truth. So this, this is actually a real base gospel truth. God does not justify people who are already in any way worth being justified. It's not because you did something. He justifies people who are still lost in their sin. Like, oh, that's really good news. Because I am ungodly. I sin. I turn from God. Says I change you. You didn't clean up yourself to get to God. God came to us in our ungodly, broken, sinful state, and He says, "Hey, someone else worked 40 hours this week, and I'm going to give you the paycheck that's due them." Jesus. So, first question as we go through these different parts of uh, Genesis of Romans 4 here. Um, is, do you know God has forgiven you? And it's not because you worked hard. I didn't even put the word you in there. That's okay. And I didn't do that. <laughs> so I'm going to play this off like I did it on purpose. Uh, do you know this is, this is true? That you've been forgiven, and it's not because you worked hard. It's not because it's something you did. That's a, that's a pretty good, like, wake up in the morning and remember that. Because I might spend my day working really hard, whether it's to be justified by others or just God is to be made right with them in the right relationship, to like feel whole, and then go like, I just keep working hard and it isn't getting there. Because we weren't made for that. Even Abraham, way back, wasn't made for that. The second thing he addresses here is his faith versus religion. Not just works, but religion. So he says, hey, this, you might be not, maybe you're not thinking about Abraham, that he did great works and God made him righteous. Maybe you're just thinking that Abraham was very religious. And what's the great symbol at this time for religious people? Jewish people would be circumcision. In fact, there was arguments. People kicked out of church because they weren't circumcised. This thing, they, they go all the way back to Abraham and say, God said you had to do this or you couldn't be in. He says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? This religious act or also for the uncircumcised? Who, who gets in then? Has this always been a thing? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Faith. Under that, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Was it not after, but before? So he said, "Hold on." So did, did Abraham have to get circumcised? And God said, "Once you're circumcised, then I'll give you righteousness. Then I'll make you right. Then I'll make you whole. Then our relationship will be okay." And he says, "You should just just look chronologically at how it works. Let's look back at that. How quick we might forget that." What's the word? Actually, Abraham put faith in God, believed, was made righteous, and then God actually tells him this is a way to show off that righteousness. It's actually Genesis 17. This is my covenant which you, you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you should be circumcised. You should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Not, this makes my covenant. This is a symbol that shows you're on the team. It shows you're part of God's family. It's, it's a, um, 
Yeah, an idea I think that we see uh, all over the place, right? This idea of the symbol that shows that something's changed in you and not doing a thing, and that actually is what indicates it. It's really hard, right? This is a very common thing we see in the church, too. I mean, I have another way to just see it. So let's say, <laughs> let's say in the Packers' big win today, they, uh, that's a prophecy. Um, <laughs> I show up in a jersey, and I run out on the field, right? And I go, I'm on the team, because I'm wearing a jersey, <coughs> right? I would probably, if someone hit me, I would die. I would be crushed, uh, I assume. But me wearing the jersey, putting it on, does not make me a Packer, right? What makes me a Packer is the team choosing me, saying you're on the team. And hey, here's a jersey to wear to indicate you're on the team. But just because I'm wearing the jersey, even though some fans might think they're on the team, uh, me wearing the jersey doesn't make me on the team. Being a team, and right, the analogy breaks down, because it's, these are highly skilled people who worked very hard for very long uh, who are on this team. But this is, I'm on the team, and then I wear a jersey to show on the team. And God's saying, uh, Paul is saying, that this is what God did. And here, it wasn't that, that Abraham did all the right stuff and then God let him on, that he was religious enough. He's saying, no, he, he put faith in me, he trusted me. And then that's how he got his righteousness. And then the circumcision is a symbol of that. It's, to show the people that he's set apart that he's put his faith in God. He's on the team. And so the question to ask ourselves in this faith versus religion from Romans 4, do you know God has made you righteous and it's not because you were righteous? I don't think anyone calls you righteous anymore. <laughs> that was cool for a while. Uh, you're very righteous. Uh, but it's not because you look right. I mean, how often does this, we act like a Christian, that phrase, even like that was, that didn't sound, you, know, you might do something and someone will, that wasn't very Christian of you. Me acting like a Christian doesn't make me a Christian. Me being nice and good to people doesn't make me a Christian. I've had uh, a neighbor who said, when they found out that I was a Christian, was like, oh, you are pretty nice. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, there's other nice people who aren't Christians. Uh, hopefully only, you know, I'm not the only nice person you met. <laughs> the fact that I come to church, the fact that I'm in a small group, or that I pray, or that I read my Bible, that I'm religious, that I'm spiritual, doesn't make me right with God. Those actions, those actually come out of me putting faith in Christ and changing. And going, I want to be this place. I should come on Sunday morning to worship with friends so I can be reminded of this good news that it's not because I look religious, it's because of what God has done. I mean, this is, we use this word overflow and hope sometimes. This is the idea that, is that we're actually changed by the gospel. We put our faith in Christ. We remember what he's done in this good news and that changes us and then starts making us look like certain people that hopefully do stand, stand apart. This gift that meets a very ungodly, non-religious person changes them. That's the gospel. Not because we or Father Abraham did some things then God said, okay, now you're in. Instead, uh, was changed first. And then next he says, he just goes after the law here quickly. The faith versus the law. This, uh, this law that came out, it says, here's what it looks like to live. I want you to live this way. And if this is broken, if you can't live this way, then their, their death would have to be paid. For this, and we see a whole sacrificial system set up uh, where it, things have to be killed, animals, to show the severity of the law. This is from Romans 4 here. It says, 
right after that, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. It's not because they obeyed it. It's not because the law came and they fulfilled it. They did everything right. And God's like, okay, you follow all my rules, now I'll let you in. For those who depend on the law are heirs. Faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And there's no law. If there's no law, there's no transgression. And so we've actually talked about this earlier in Romans 3. This idea that the law actually just shows us that we are broken. It shows us that we can't fulfill the way God called us. There's something off. And so we need God. It's something that indicates to me, we can't, we can't do it, Drew. It should signal to me, something's not right, and I should look. So how, how do I make this right? And I go, oh, yeah, I was created to look to God, put faith in Him, and allow Him to change me, and trust He can do these things. So he's saying the law wasn't given to him. In fact, in Galatians, it talks about the same thing. Galatians goes through a very similar argument of how Abraham put his faith in God, and that's what we should look to. That's the example we should look to. It says, uh, and it goes more in depth on this topic. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after that, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He's saying, the law actually came way after Abraham was considered righteous. So now is that a new, is that like a new set of laws that, that voids the old one? So for a while it was about faith in God, and then it turned to like, no, follow the rules, and then now it's gone back. It says, no, no, no. There was a promise by, of God that we put faith in him and believe in him and move towards him and, and give our life to that. And that's what makes us right and whole. And that's continuing. The law came so we go, hey, you keep thinking you figured it out. This is what this is what life looks like. And then we go, oh, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, because remember, it's about believing his promise. Believing his promise. And the law helps us see that we just transgressions, there's sin, that we got to turn to the one who will save us from that. And so the question, do you know God has made you righteous? And it's not because we follow the rules. Hard because there are days that I say, God, I'm doing all the things you tell me to do, and I still suffer, and this is still really hard. And this, and my kid isn't doing what I want want them to do, but I'm doing what you told me to do, or this isn't working in my job, or a marriage, or a friendship, or just I still have all this weight on me, and I feel off, I feel broken, and I'm following the rules. That's because that's not how it works. We can, we can follow the Lord, we can look to Him and know one day He'll make things right. Following the rules isn't what brings rightness and wholeness. So as we kind of get to the end here of our Romans 4 journey, therefore the promise comes by faith. He gets to it, he says, so, so we look back, right? It wasn't by works of Abraham, it wasn't by his religion, it wasn't because he followed the law which came later after him. Again, friends, it was about faith. We turn from this, we keep wanting to make it about the things we're doing, and those around us are doing, or maybe just that we're not doing what they're doing. And it's it's not about it's about us turning to to Christ and the work that He's done. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So that maybe uh, maybe by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are uh, of the law, but also to those who have faith in Abraham. He's saying Jews and Gentiles, all of us comes the same way. He's the Father of us all. That would be, be pretty scandalous. 
Abraham's actually the father of even your Gentile friends. As is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of the Lord, and he, he believed that God gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. God comes in and says, you're going to be the father of so many who put faith in me. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. I mean, you're not me, right? I'm, pretty, I'm on my way to death. My wife's on her way to death. We want a child, we don't have a child. God promises this family. And then God, we know God is the one who brings things out of, out of death to life. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Even that, in that moment, he didn't turn to like, all right, I'm going to figure this out. There's got to be another way. Maybe there's some other type of system, some religious system, some other things I could sacrifice to, or people could do something for me, or I could rub something, rocks on me, or something. And there's got to be another way. So even in the midst of that, he waver, he still just did the one thing he's called to do. Faith in God, belief in God's promise. And he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully pursued that God had power, and he persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why he was credited in his righteousness. He believed the promise of God. Do you know God has power to bring life where he can't? It's actually the only one who brings life where he can't. There are many things I feel are dying or dead around me. I feel so broken, they're barely holding on, and I've got to find a way to bring life to this, forgetting the one who actually owns it and brings life, can bring life, and has brought life. This was brings us back to our wonderful thing. There's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This really good news is that I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to bring life, and it's not me that brings life. And that's good news because there's one who actually can bring life. It's faith in that God that we trust in. So he says, hey, we're doing the math here. The math is that faith in God and his work brings righteousness, and that's how it has always been. Even if you plug Abraham into that equation, it's always been this way, friends, and we keep turning away from that. And ultimately for us today here in our church in Columbia Heights, in this moment in September, sitting here, it's still the same thing. The words, as he ends Romans 4, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he is delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Paul again, sharing the gospel with his friends. Even, even my faith in God is so hard for me to do. Even turning to him, that one thing I'm created to do, to turn to him be changed is really hard. And in the end, again, we just, that's all we got. And so he, he ends us by saying, Abraham did the same thing, and that same thing, that righteousness that was granted to him is ours too, by turning to the Lord. And so the same way we get this opportunity to discover this sweet, wonderful thing. I'm going to invite our worship team up here. We get an opportunity to, to look closer and closer and turn our faith to some very wonderful news that 
Your work doesn't save you. Your religion doesn't save you. Your rules don't save you. And that's, I hope that is relief to you today. I hope today you go, thank God for that. Because there is one who does rescue us and save us. We can put our faith in him to change us. As we enter the rest of Romans, now we get the opportunity to unpack what's that going to look like. Um, and it always has been the, the way to righteousness. A couple quick uh, things to consider as we move to a time of worship here together. Do you know Jesus, the one who has done the work to make you right? Maybe you don't. Maybe you say, I ah, still this seems fishy. <laughs> I'm not sure. Today's, today's a great day to say yes. That's what it takes you turning like Abraham did in like Many have after him say yes to Jesus, allowing him to start changing you, for you to start taking the time to unpack that incredible tomb of the king's treasures and start understanding how over and over the king has called to us to put faith in him and to change us. Or maybe consider when is it hard for you to put faith in God's plans or his work or his power. Maybe one of those things you really like holding on to. You like it when it's your work or your power or your plans. What would it look like to, to release those and go like, actually, is there a better than right? Maybe ask who helps you now? Put faith in Jesus, who's the one who's pointing you to him? Maybe not yourself. I mean, who do you know who needs to know about this gift of forgiveness? That they've been forgiven. Someone might this week just need to hear those words that they've been forgiven. That's a heavy thing to hear. Um, we're going to then take some time here to worship God in multiple ways. One of those ways is through communion. We have that out in the hallways. That's an opportunity to take communion, to, to break bread and drink wine, which is what Jesus commanded us to do. He said, hey, when you're together, break this to remind you of my body that was broken at a crossing. Drink this wine to remind you of my blood that was shed. That's the work I did to rescue you. That's what brings you salvation and righteousness and wholeness and freedom and peace and love. That's, that's what brings it to you. So we do that to remember that that his body was broken. Then he called us to that. You don't have to be a member here at home. Uh, you just ask if you're a Christian, so that's meaningful to you. And you can do that out uh, in the hallway by yourself or with friends or family. Uh, we also are going to sing good words that remind us of this gospel. So this is an opportunity for you to sing, maybe to remind yourself, and it might even be the person next to you needs to hear you singing those words to help remind them of this goodness, this good news. There's also people in the back of the room who would love to pray for you. Um, for anything, stop there. Also, you can uh, respond just by giving. You can do that on the app, uh, on our website, or you can do it. There's a box, a black box out there you can also be too. Let me pray for us as we finish our time in worship together. Lord, you are incredible. You're so good. You're such a good father who loves his children to the place of uh, uh, going to death for them. And you're not You're ungodly. You turn from you. We're sinners, and at the same moment, we are so deeply loved by you that you would do this for us. I pray all that would wash over us as we sing, as we worship you. Thank you for an opportunity to get today. Amen.